Welcome to the Female Insight Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar. Welcome to the Female Insight Zone. This is Mary Beth Kuzmeski. Today, I'm interviewing Sally Helgeson. She is the author, along with Marshall Goldsmith, of the new book, How Women Rise. And it is an amazing book. I've read the book. I have asked people to buy the book. I've given a copy of the book to someone. It is absolutely amazing. But Sally also has written other books called The Female Vision. And she wrote The Female Advantage, which was a best-selling book, as well as the groundbreaking The Web of Inclusion, which was really a groundbreaking book as it leads to inclusion and that sort of language being used in leadership. She has taught seminars at Harvard Graduate School of Education. She's absolutely amazing, and I cannot wait to ask her lots of questions on this interview today. So welcome, Sally. Thank you so much. That was a very enthusiastic endorsement. I appreciate it. Well, it it is very true. I think sometimes, you know, on podcasts, you know, we interview lots of people. I actually like to read the book and I loved this book. I really, really (laughs) did. My daughter will be reading this book. She's a young adult, but these are the kinds of things, and we'll talk about this, that women and men need to kind of know about. So in your book, How Women Rise, you talk about 12 habits 12 habits that women have talk a little bit about how you got to understanding that there's these 12 habits that may hold women back and then we'll talk about some of them you know i've done as you know i've been in working in women's leadership for almost 30 years now starting with the female advantage women's ways of leadership which was the first book to focus on what women have to contribute to organizations rather than how they need to adapt And part of my work is doing seminars and workshops for women all over the world. And I had developed a new uh, workshop in about 2011 to help women be more intentional as they thought through their careers. So I began to use Marshall Goldsmith, my co-author on this book's wonderful book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, about the habits, as he said, that get in the way of successful people. And I found his template to be very compelling. The idea was the same habits that can help you get to a certain point can start to get in your way as you seek to move higher. But it was also noteworthy to me, and it's not surprising since Marshall primarily coaches CEOs and about 75% to 80% of his coachees are men. It didn't surprise me, but I was struck by the fact that while some of the habits or behaviors that he talked about were gender neutral, others were, I thought, very reflective of his male leadership base and did not necessarily apply to women. Things like he said, you need to learn to apologize. Well, many women can't even open a door without apologizing, apparently, just for being there. So I thought, well, that's not very applicable. And, you know, constantly talking about how great you are or claiming all the credit, those did not seem to be particularly problematic to the many, many thousands of women that I work with. So I suggested to him, and at the same time, a colleague did as well, that we collaborate on a book that looked at specifically at behaviors that got in the way of successful women. And I had a rich repository of information about that from the work that I've been doing for many decades. And he also had some, you know, terrific insights 
from his experience. He has had experience coaching women. So we collaborated on it. And what we're hearing is that it really provides very useful tools for women. And before we talk about the habits, I do want to emphasize one thing that we focused on behaviors, not because we are in any way trying to blame women if they feel that they're stuck or if they become stuck. We recognize that there are cultural and structural issues that get in the way, but by focusing on habits and behaviors that it is within women's ability to control to change, we feel that that's the most likely path for women to develop greater influence and power to shape how decisions are made and thereby shape the cultural and structural issues that get in a way of successful women and women at every level. So this is really about maximizing women's impact. Yes. And I think it is really a guide to kind of what to be aware of. You know, I I look through the 12 habits. I think, well, how many of these do I have now? How many did (laughs) I have before? And how many do my daughter have? And it's an awareness factor. So I like the fact that you say we're not blaming women for, you know, being where they're at in this particular situation. But I just think this is a great, great book for figuring out how we can get beyond some of those things. So Give us a couple of the habits that you think really, really stand out and are prominent in a lot of women. Well, the ones that that we're hearing most back, and I've been doing some workshops already, and of course, a lot of little programs and bookstores and local events all over the country. But the ones I'm getting the most feedback on, I would say, are, which is habit two in the book, expecting others to spontaneously notice and value your contributions rather than being clear about what your contributions are and claiming your value. I became aware of this years ago when I was commissioned to do a study for a group of partnership firms, that is investment banking, consulting, accounting, and law firms, in which I was interviewing the women who had made partners, which was were not very many at that time, And one of the areas I was interviewing them about was what they saw as the greatest assets that the younger women in the organization who had potential to be partner brought and what was most problematic. And they were almost universal or very consistent in their responses. They said, what the women are best at is doing A plus high quality work, crossing the T's, dotting the I's. They're extremely conscientious and reliable. And their work tends to be superb because they put so much into it. And they said what they're worst at is getting known for the quality of their work, bringing attention to that work from people higher up, especially. So I started asking when I have groups and workshops or audiences, you know, how many of you are good at drawing attention to the quality of your work? And often I'll get, you know, fewer than 10% of the hands in the room will go up. And when I say, why not? What holds you back? I usually hear one of two responses. One is, well, if I have to act like that jerk down the hall to get noticed around here, no thank you, which is a very either or mindset when you think about it. It's Mm -hmm. either you have to act like the worst example of whoever's sucking up all the oxygen, or you have to hang back and just wait to be noticed. And the other response is, I believe if I do great work, people should notice. Probably in an ideal world, they would. 
But just because they should doesn't mean they will. And especially in today's environment where people are so busy and so pressed and we have so many demands on our time. As you move higher in an organization, it really becomes a subtle way of talking about what you've achieved and promoting the value and importance of what you've achieved really becomes an ever more important skill. And it's key for women who struggle with this to find a way that they are comfortable talking about their achievements. It doesn't mean you have to brag. It doesn't mean you have to be obnoxious, but it's really important. Right. And that is definitely something that just lots and lots of women have that I know that I did. You know, now I have to promote my business. I do all this stuff and it's uncomfortable for me. It's still uncomfortable to this day for me seeing my picture all over the place and doing stuff like that. And I speak a lot as well, but you have to do it in a way that is going to reach the market. And sometimes you have to do something that's outside of your comfort zone because I'd prefer to do none of it. But, you know, (laughs) you have to if you want to be in business and have people hire you and, you know, get your word out about whatever that it is that you are trying to do in this world. If you don't get the word out, you're losing out, but so is everyone else. That's exactly right. And I think that's one of the helpful ways that you can frame it. A story that we tell in the book, it's a woman I worked with, a young engineer out in Silicon Valley, Ellen. This is a real story. She was in one of my workshops and I was talking about this issue and she raised her hand. She said, boy, do I know what you mean. She said, I'm an engineer. She said, but I'm very good at connecting people. I I have a lot of people in my orbit. She said, I'm probably more extroverted than a lot of the engineers here. And it's something that I pride myself on. And she said, I have a new boss. And about two months into it, we went away for a performance review on a retreat. And he said in our interview, he said, you do very high quality work, but you're not very connected in this organization. We need to have more visibility. People need to know who you are. You need to get out there more. And she said, I came away from that feeling as if I had been punched in the stomach. I thought, how could he not value the fact that this is exactly what I'm good at? How could I feel that I'm good at something and he would not see it at all? And she said, it took me about six weeks and I realized, how would he know? I never told him. He didn't monitor my emails. He didn't come in and out of my office. He didn't see who was coming in and out. If I wanted to change that point of view, I was going to have to let him know. I was very uncomfortable, but I started a practice of emailing him every Friday and saying, these are the people I connected with this week. It's just that one line and then a couple names of you know, important people that I'd, you know, had some interaction with. She said, I didn't hear back from him. I didn't get anything. I thought, oh, he thinks what a waste of time or, you know, why is she doing this? And she said, uh, you know, a couple months later, I ran into him. It was a very, you know, dispersed organization. And he walked up to me and he said, I am so glad you're doing this. He said, this is important information. This is information I need to know. This helps me understand who our unit is in touch with and how we're providing resources for people. It really strengthens me to have this information. And she realized she'd never thought of it in that way. She was only thinking about how uncomfortable she would be talking about that. Ah, Absolutely. And it's amazing that something as simple as what you just talked about is going to have the impact. And we think, well, maybe it won't, but we have to do these things because otherwise, I am assuming that men are doing this all the time. And it's something that is more natural to them. 
So give us another one of your habits, and then let's talk about how do we break these habits a little bit. Certainly. (laughs) One of the other habits, which is kind of allied with this, is overvaluing expertise. And that is focusing all your attention on mastering the details and doing a great, even superb job with what you've had, and then expecting that that is going to position you for what comes next. And that often doesn't happen because you're using up all your bandwidth to do a great job rather than building the connections or the visibility that will help you get known, as we just talked about. But also, what you're doing is you're really showing that you are perfect for the job that you have now. Doing the job you have now perfectly does not necessarily mean that you're ready to move to the next job. And by the way, it can also make you indispensable to your boss if you do a job superbly. A woman I worked with who, you know, I talk about her story a little bit in the book. And she said to me, she said, you know, about 18 months ago, my boss came to me and said, this opportunity came up. I wanted to recommend you. He said, but I realized I could not lose you. You're just too good at this. And she said she walked away from that actually thinking, oh, how wonderful. He thinks I'm great. (laughs) And she said then it started to work on me. And she said when the next job came up that I really wanted, she said, I I walked into his office and I said, I will slit my wrist to get this job and I need you to help me. (laughs) Because she realized she was frustrated. And he did. He went all out. And it was really good. And, you know, this is a behavior I've been aware of for a long time because I've heard about it a lot from search firms that will say, you know, there's such a difference in women's application letters and men's often, you know, and men will say, you know, of course, I'm qualified to do this job because I've done X, Y, and Z. And sometimes it doesn't even really relate to the job they're applying for. But there's a presumption, of course, I can do this. And women will also say, well, you know, I've never done exactly that. So I'm not sure I'm ready stuff like that. And they said, it's very disappointing because you can see from the letter that the woman is in many ways more qualified, but because she hangs back, the client will decide to go with the man because he demonstrates the confidence and the willingness to take the risk rather than holding back. So I think that understanding that expertise, while it's really important to do a good job, but understanding that expertise will only get us so far is an important recognition and something we need to really act on. So those two are in some ways allied, but I see them so often working together. And then the overvaluing expertise, we've got a chapter in there on perfectionism and and those two are really allied as well. Yeah, absolutely. And in this concept of needing to get approval, you know, seeking approval, wanting to know, hey, how am I doing? But I would think that if we're seeking approval, then I'm feeling like, okay, this is, I'm doing a really great job. And that's enough of the two way that shows that I'm doing a good job. But it's not enough because you're seeking approval on the things that you're doing right here, but you're still not doing perhaps enough to promote yourself to that next level. You're doing a really good job and they want you to stay right there. (laughs) Exactly. They want you to stay right there. You're putting your, another behavior, but it allies with this. You're putting your job before your career and thinking, you know, if I just do a good enough job, my career will take care of itself. Not really. Let's say one of these habits or two happens to be or something. Nine. Or or <laughs> Yes, or a lot of them. How do we get unstuck? How do we break this habit? 
Well, we have a really good template for that. And I think that's one of the great strengths of How Women Rise and one of the reasons we're getting such a good response. It's really a four-step process. When I looked at this, I thought, you know, there are periods in my life I've exhibited about seven or eight of these behaviors. You need to start with one. You need to start with one. It doesn't even need to be the most important. It can be the easiest. Start with one behavior or one part of a behavior. One of our behaviors is offering too much information and being too sort of loquacious and too many words. So you may say, okay, I'm just going to become more concise and authoritative in my communication in this weekly meeting that I'm a part of. So you just commit to that. Or in the case we just had with Ellen, I'm going to let my boss know what I'm contributing about X. So you just keep it limited and you start with one thing that's really manageable. And then the second step, and and I can't emphasize this enough, and I think it's really one of the reasons this book is powerful. The second step is engage allies and ask for help. Ask for observations. Say, I'm trying to become more concise in my communications. You're in this meeting. Could you just watch and see if you think I'm making progress on it? And can I get your thoughts afterwards? Or you could go up to somebody who you view as very concise and crisp in their communication and say, I notice you really seem to be able to get to the point quickly. Can you give me any thoughts about how you do that? What has worked for you? What has been successful? What do you find effective? So you're enlisting them in your effort. You don't then, you know, they say, well, I think you could do this. You don't say, well, I don't do that because of X, Y, or Z. Your job is just to say thank you. Mm. They're offering you some help. They're offering you some coaching. Uh, You can also engage a peer coach, somebody you work with more regularly. Here's what I need to work on this. I've been doing this for nine years. We have a weekly call. Here's what I want to work on this week. Here are the actions I'm going to take. And she holds me accountable and we do the same for each other. But what's so important about engaging allies? And Marshall has some great research that shows that people who work with others dealing with issues that are getting in their way are much more successful at that than people who try to do it alone. Allies hold us accountable. They give us new information. We end up broadening the relationships that we have in a very positive way, a very effective way. It's wonderful for perfectionists because it puts us in the position of acknowledging vulnerability and that we need help. So it really is helpful in that way. And finally, and I think this is so underrecognized, it advertises the fact that we're changing. Because, as I said before, this is a very busy environment we're in. People have lots of demands on their time, and it's easy to get pigeonholed for a behavior that you feel you're outgrowing because people just simply don't notice that you're changing. You know, if you were, say, the issue of being concise, if you were sort of all over the map, they may not notice that you are now getting more concise. And by engaging people and asking them to observe you for feedback or also for ideas, you begin to spread the word that you're changing and people really notice it, especially if these are communication issues. Like one of the behaviors we have in there is minimizing, and that's 
you know, apologizing as part of that, but also always saying, I just have one point to make, or this will only take one second, or, you know, sort of shrinking in terms of your body language, rather than really holding your space. So if you're working on something like that, you know, here's what I'm trying to do. Will you help me and see if I'm doing it? You really spread the word and it makes it much, much more powerful. That's sort of step two. And the the third step is letting go of judgment of yourself and of other people. And as you seek help and as you bring people into your orbit, helping you become more of what you can potentially be, you become more tolerant of other people as well because you're more in touch with, you know, the difficulty of the struggle. You know, that's really important. So learning to let go, women tend to ruminate more than men. That is, they go back over and over. Why did I do that? Or that was so stupid. Oh, well, I never learn what they must think, all that kind of stuff. Learning to let that go is important. Just one little story in the book. I mean, I had that demonstrated to me very vividly. Marshall and I were working one afternoon. He has an apartment in New York City, and we were there for the day. He got a phone call from his assistant, Sarah, and I heard him on the phone. He said, Dr. Kim, oh, I was supposed to call him at two. Oh, well, you can reschedule it. I thought, oh, my goodness, I know who Dr. Kim is. He's the CEO of the World Bank. And Marshall (laughs) says, oh, well. (laughs) And if I forgot to call the CEO of the World Bank on a scheduled call, I would be kicking myself down the hall and probably reliving that moment for the next two or three years. So it was really interesting to hear that. And I came home. Fortunately, the next morning, I had an example where I really had to let something go. I made a mistake in an article that I wrote, which fortunately had only posted online. And I heard about it at about 7.15 in the morning. I was able to correct it, but I made a big banner and I put it above my desk and it said, oh, well, and uh, it really was very helpful. And I think that's kind of a mantra in the book that people are resonating with. I'm finding that when I'm on the road, women will come up and say, oh, well, oh, well. And uh, (laughs) it's a helpful approach rather than, you know, what's wrong with me, et cetera. Right. Yeah. And then finally, you know, remembering that the behaviors that may not be serving you that well did help you get where you are. So if you've been over-focused on expertise, fine. That conscientiousness, that willingness to show up and do a great job is part of what got you where you are. So you don't want to overly react against them. And you want to realize that every problematic habit you may have is also rooted in a strength. And you don't want to let that strength go. It may be rooted in conscientiousness. It may be rooted in loyalty. It may be rooted in modesty and concern for other people. You want to really acknowledge and value that. Yeah, just, you know, you talk about having this process and and you really do. And it's almost like you have to do every single one of those things really to get this habit off our plate and to start thinking differently and acting differently. So Sally, how can people reach you? They can reach me through my website, which is sallyhelgeson.com. There's a contact button on there uh, if you're interested in emailing me. You can send me a message to connect on LinkedIn. I'm getting more active on social media. It's never been my strong point, but I've been inspired by Marshall's 1 million LinkedIn followers and (laughs) I'm learning from him. We're on all the platforms, but LinkedIn is where I really 
feel most comfortable connecting. So, so please get in touch with me that way. You know, the book has a website, howwomenrise.com, that our publisher put up. And, and you can buy the book basically anywhere, any bookstore, any. I just got back Wednesday, late Wednesday night from a part of my tour for the book, uh, which is took me to Chicago, Memphis, Atlanta, Miami, Houston, and also connected through Detroit, as well as Albany, my home airport, Albany, New York. Everywhere I saw How Women Rise, it was in the uh, bookstores and the airports and the newsstands. So it was exciting. So you can pretty much buy the book anywhere books are sold or with any online purchaser, obviously, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, etc. I value the contacts that come through my website and through LinkedIn. So please don't hesitate. And of course, Marshall has his uh, big website, Marshall Goldsmith Library. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing some insights about your new book. I am excited to continue to pass this book to other people and tell them to buy this book and read this book. Because if women started reading this book more and they understood these concepts, we would all be better off for it. So thank you very much, Sally. And thank you to Marshall for writing this with you. Yeah. Thank you, Mary Beth. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Female Insight Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.